Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Anne Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, sometimes, even though it's difficult, it's good to know, we are joined by Justin Poole, lecturer in biological sciences and the online course development coordinator in the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Fordham University, who shares his thoughts about teaching at a distance and how science can help offer a greater understanding of the forces behind our current crisis. So, Justin, thank you so much for agreeing to be on this podcast with us. We're really, really happy to have you here. Can you tell people who are listening a little bit about maybe how you would have described your job in November and then how that's transformed now? I'm a lecturer in the Biological Sciences Department, uh, and I also work with GSAS and online course development for bringing some programs online. And I can't say how much I appreciate being tasked to do that in the past, because little did I know that literally the whole university would be online in nine months. I'm also a core advisor. So going back to November, I would just describe myself as as an instructor and really trying to help my first year advisees navigate college life, right? We were planning at that point their spring semesters. And then I also teach human anatomy lecture and lab this semester, which is that class is all seniors. So fast forward to this semester when things started happening, uh, when we first heard about coronavirus in, in China, I started bringing it up with my classes. We started talking about it, what it meant for the world. And even back then, I, I went back in my notes not too long ago to see when I first talked about it. it was that first meeting in February for my non-majors ecology class. My point then was just to really discuss what this means for the world, uh, what this means for China. And I'll be honest, I didn't see any of this happening when we were discussing this in, in the first week of February. But it, it happened rapidly, and I, I promised them that I would stay up to date with the research, and that's exactly what I did. Each of our, our lectures starts with 10 to 15 minutes of discussion about coronavirus and where it's going. The hardest thing about this whole thing has really been advising. I thought it would be the teaching, it's the advising. Why is advising so hard online? When you have an advising session, it's typically one-on-one. -on -one. You're in person you really get to know your students really well in that. And I think there's some hesitancy for talking online uh, versus talking in person. But the sheer panic some of the students have come to me with recently, especially in my first years, just feeling that they're not cut out for college. Uh, and I'm like, what, what's making you feel like this? Your, your GPA is super strong. I think it's just been that self-doubt without having that reassurance from one-on-one -on -one interactions with professors, with administrators, with um, their support teams uh, at Fordham, with their friends and whatnot, that some of them have felt a little bit lost in this process. So I have had to have emergency meetings on Zoom where I've basically laid it out uh, for the students and say, no, you are a really good student. And I understand that you might be struggling with this change to online uh, learning but know that you're still doing really, really well. Now to your question about how do you run an online lab. That's been unique. 
Um, it's going, I'll, I'll be honest, it's, it's much easier in, in, say, anatomy, human anatomy. I also teach the night lab for physiology. So physiology is one track where, you know, you're doing largely experiments on yourself. And we have this machine called a biopack where we hook students up when they're in the lab and they get an EKG or they're looking at brain waves or they're looking at how their muscles are contracting through this machine that's basically recording electrical signals of the body. It's, it's pretty awesome. And then they, they move on later in the semester, which is the part we're in now, where they would be doing what we call wet labs, like blood lab. Um, tonight is actually the urinalysis lab, where when we are in person, they would be taking their own urine samples. Let me see how urine changes over time. Well, obviously they can't do that at home. So in that class, what I've been doing is we give them the data and we're trying to find videos that show how they would take the sample, uh, what you would do with the sample when you brought it back to the lab. Uh, we're really walking the students through that. And then we give them data. This actually today is gonna be great because normally in the lab for the uh, urinalysis, they just, generate the data. That usually takes up the full lab, and then they go write a lab report. So tonight's lab will focus more on the analysis. We have the data, we've been generating it for years, so we're gonna use that. Flip over to my anatomy lab, and when I started teaching the anatomy lab, I was looking for all the resources I could, and I found this app called Complete Anatomy. The app is, is literally the whole human body. You can peel away um, different layers, and take a look at what's under them. You can look at different systems. It has a beating heart. You can zoom into the heart, see all the valves of the heart. It's pretty cool, it really is. I've made it optional and I teach with it in the class. But the cool thing is that I've been looking at how students do and those who have the app typically do better on the lab practicals because they can take literally a human body home and study it. I have gotten a lot of positive feedback from my students who have gone on to med school with the app because the first year of medical school, the first semester is typically your human anatomy. Uh, and they said that that app was a lifesaver that first semester. So I had been teaching a lot more with it this semester. And then when we went online, I, I sent out an email saying that complete anatomy has to be mandatory. And we had already negotiated with the company, I think it was like 34 bucks for the students to have it for a full year. And I said, if you have any financial trouble, definitely let me know. I understand we're in extreme times and I'd be more than happy to work with the company to get that even discounted further, or even I would offer to pay for it myself. And basically our, our labs are now run uh, in Blackboard Collaborate. I give the PowerPoint just like I normally would in the actual uh, lab. Uh, my lab notebook, which is right next to me right now, still smells of our lab, as do most of theirs, because you know those biology labs have a distinctive um, scent to them. And I've actually gotten a few students to email me saying that whenever they open that and smell their book, it reminds them of, of being on campus. And then after we go through what, what the objectives of the lab are, are for that day, I can, in Blackboard Collaborate, we form the breakout groups and they go into their exact same lab groups that they had before we went to this online mode. And the students have really liked that. It gives them that sense of uh, normalcy. They're able to interact with their other um, lab mates and they go through 
their their lab exercise. Now, usually this time of year, we're dissecting cats in the lab so they can learn the muscles and learn the interior organ systems that we cover in lecture. But right now, it's all human uh, focused with the app, and and so far it has been working out quite well for us with with the two labs. And then my last lab class is my non-majors class. We had two in-person labs. There's only four labs throughout the semester. And for the final two labs, uh, lab three was the disease lab that we built using a, a biology simulation program that simulates the spread of diseases. That's my non-majors ecology class. So. so was that something that you'd planned ahead of time to look at disease spread or was that in response to this pandemic? That was in response. So instead of lab three being climate change, today was climate change for the non-majors. And lab three became this disease spread using the simulation program. Uh, and we built it from the, the ground up. Both my TAs did an excellent job. And the feedback from that was extremely positive because it helped the students understand, you know, because really it focuses in on why are we practicing social distancing? And the app is so cool because you can actually inject one person with the pathogen and then sit back and watch how it spreads throughout this hypothetical population. And then you can also start adding in, well, this person got a vaccine. How does that slow everything down? They reflected on what's going on in their everyday life at that time. So that was really good. You said a minute ago, and I want to ask you a little bit more about this, that your students in your non-major class have been among the most engaged and interested in kind of following along with the science of the pandemic. Can mm -hmm. you say a little bit more about what you've seen them get engaged by? Well, going back to when this all began, you know, hearing, oh, wow, there's there's a novel coronavirus in China. This is largely the only science class, well, the only biological science class that these students will take in the non-majors class as part of their core. They got the physical science and the, the living science that they have to take. So this was really their chance to ask, you know, what does this mean? And being in an ecology class where we do study covered diseases and, and climate change and human behavior, I was able to, you know, almost every lecture has a tie-in to coronavirus as it is right now. But they would come to class and I always give my updates of where the, the numbers stand and try to, you know, say this is where we are at. And the students ask a ton of questions. They ask, well, what does this mean? Or, or why do we see, you know, people keep saying, oh, it's going to slow down in, in the summer months, but why, why is Brazil seeing such a large increase in coronavirus? So we can discuss that the science isn't perfect right now. We don't really know how much this will slow down in the summer months. And the students, I think, really look to those uh, examples and, and want to know. They, they see things on TV and they want to understand why uh, that is the way it is. And I think that's that's been the toughest part for me as well, because I have to come in knowing as much as I possibly can about it. And I do admit to them that I don't know the answer. Like I got a question last week of why India doesn't have much higher uh, case numbers, uh, considering they're one of the densest populations on the planet. And I said, I have to do some more research on that to see why. I do know that they locked down pretty quickly, but is it truly they don't have cases or is it that they don't have enough testing or uh, is it that some people are afraid to seek uh, a test? So I said I'd get back to them on that and hopefully I can do some more research on that by Friday when we meet again. 
what will you keep from this period that you find is valuable? I think the complete anatomy that's come in so handy uh, really shows that while we do have that in-person lab, it's, it's very hard to study for anatomy without having, you know, being able to see. And in the past, students have been taking pictures of their dissection, but now we have this tool that I can also teach with while giving them the lecture of that day and say, while we, you know, we use a, a cat as our, our model, we can also use the human in the app, and you can take both of those and study mm -hmm. uh, from them moving forward. And the simulations, especially the disease simulation, it's so engaging. And I think, you know, even for, for the next many years, non-major students are going to be very interested in, in this pandemic. It's changed their lives forever. When I first started teaching, there was a really cool lab we did in my master's program when I taught an intro bio lab. Uh, and the first lab, this was at Ohio University, the first lab for the non-major students was get to know each other. So what you do is you, each student is given a little vial. One of them is, it has some sucrose in it. Uh, and they go and they say they have to exchange, they, they pull up a milliliter of the fluid and they exchange it with, with the other person in the lab, introduce themselves, write down the name in their lab book, say what their major is, and they go to the next student, exchange one milliliter. And each time you set aside a little bit and you test, was there sucrose? And the point of that is to show how disease spreads. So they, they were able to take that. And we only infected one person in the beginning of the class. And by the end of the class, by the end of the introductory period, almost the whole class is, is infected. And that's, that's a, a mode of transmission that you, know, you have to be very close with, right? You're exchanging bodily fluids in, in that one. It could be a cough. It could be saliva. It could be uh, a number of things. But you have to have that close mission. So just looking back at, at the whole coronavirus, that would be a lab that I would love to do in person along with this Symbio thing online so they can see not just the small side effect, but what it looks like on a national and global level with the, with the simulations that we've been doing. Can you say a little bit more as someone who's had the experience of helping people transition courses online at a more ordinary pace. What advice would you give to, uh, to other colleagues who are teaching in STEM fields or in life sciences fields especially on how to convert their courses or things that work really well online? So things that work really well online, I, I think, especially in the life sciences, is you, you want to, A, take a step back and realize that when you're in person, you don't have random technology glitches. My internet one day might not be great, so we might have to alter class a little bit. But I think that first part is understanding that things aren't going to be perfect. And if they are done at a nor more normal pace, things can be done with a little bit more relative ease, I think. Uh, you can lay out the course objectives really easily. And that's something I've tried to stick to, even with moving online at a rapid pace is make sure the students know what the course objectives are and they aren't being lost. The second thing to teaching online is it doesn't have to be a 100% shift away from a normal biology class. We can still give our, our lectures narrated PowerPoints that we would normally give. We can still tell stories that we normally would in class. And 
just know that we can make those those connections with the lab. I won't lie, the labs require a little bit more forethought, obviously. And I, I did think this was a horrible idea. Our our lab supplier actually said they would ship um, specimens home <laughs> to students' houses if, if we would like. But I, I I said I think if if we went that that route. There would probably be a lot of angry parents uh, sending letters. Why? Why are my students getting dissection materials and dissecting animals on on my you know kitchen counter? So I wouldn't recommend doing that for an online class. Just know that there are a lot of tools uh, out there. One of the things that I, I found truly fascinating was how much professors who have been teaching online for a long time have been willing to help. And that goes all the way back to complete anatomy. I attended a webinar with faculty members who have taught online anatomy and University of Southern California has an online anatomy class. Anne and I have been talking to people from all different disciplines and parts of the university. And what I've noticed is that they use their disciplinary lens to help themselves and their students understand what we're collectively experiencing. And what's fascinating to me about what you've been describing is using the tools of your discipline to explain to the students about the coronavirus. And I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about what that's meant to you instructionally and how do you think that's been helpful to your students in working their way through this current experience? So my background um, is in vector-borne disease ecology. So Lyme disease is primarily what I focus on and and a couple other um, tick-borne diseases. But throughout my PhD program here at Florida, I, I got to learn a lot about mosquitoes and malaria and how, how diseases spread. And the coronavirus is a zoonotic disease. It, it crossed over from an animal. It's not vector-borne. It doesn't need an intermediate. We are now passing it along. But I, I was able to use my background with that type of modeling and, and tell the students you know, a little bit about what's going on and give them my perspective. And they appreciate, once I explain to them, you know, how vector systems work, because I had to bring that aspect into it, because that's my specialty. How does Lyme disease spread among the human population, right? It doesn't spread from person to person. It's by going outside and getting a tick on you, and you don't know that the tick's on you for over 30 hours. So then I was able to jump ahead to to coronavirus and, and discuss how this can spread, right? Now we're finding out more and more every day. And that's why I said modeling is the most impossible feat that humanity has ever tried to undertake. And I, I use in my non-majors class, um, I was also in econ concentration when I was an undergrad. So I was able to, to tie that in like the economic models, right? Everyone's going on, well, the models showed this and we're not seeing this. And I said, well, the assumptions are what the assumptions are. The more data we get, the more accurate the models will begin. We started off with very little assumptions on coronavirus, right? Just like in an economic model, we didn't know where the bottom would be. Um, The markets collapsed, but we saw some rebounding and now they're starting to go back down a little bit as people announce what their earnings truly were uh, in March. So I was able to use that as like a segue into, hey, modeling isn't perfect. A lot of people expect that when the government releases a number that, 2.5 million to 3 million people are going to die, that that's what's going to happen, right? But that's what would have happened had we not shut everything down like we did. Well, then we released the numbers of 180,000 to 250,000. 
And I, I told my class, well, that's contingent on whatever those model parameters were. And it turns out those model parameters assumed that only 50% of people abided by social distancing. We get the luck of the draw, or unluck of the draw, if you will, that we, we've been able to watch what happened in Europe. We've already seen that on our media every day. We saw Italy's health care collapse. So when those numbers came out and we started social distancing, Americans, by and large, were like, wow, look what happened in, in Europe. And they took it seriously. 85 to 90 percent actually did the social distancing. So it showed that we took it seriously. And I was able to use my experience with vector diseases where we try to forecast every year. Is it going to be a bad tick year? Is it going to be a bad Lyme disease year? And that is very, very hard. Anyone that tells you they definitively know that it's going to be a bad tick year or not, they, we, we don't know, right? There's so many factors that, that can go into modeling diseases. We, we do kind of project what a tick season is going to look like. This year, just for everybody out there, it looks like it's probably going to be a fairly lower um, year. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean that tick risk for you is, is substantially lower. You can get a tick anytime just walking through. All you need is one. And the one that gives you Lyme disease is the one that you didn't see in time. We had one year where we were experiencing, where we were expecting high tick numbers, right? Uh, but then the Lyme disease numbers didn't line up to our expectations. Well, if you looked at the weather data, almost every weekend through June and into early July rained. Every weekend. So people weren't going outside and getting infected with ticks. They weren't going for those hikes. They were going you know, into the movies instead of going for that, that weekend hike. So even with our best modeling, human behavior, you don't know what to expect. And it can be driven by weather, it can be driven by economic circumstances, or it can be driven by um, just other sicknesses going around. From the student perspective, do you think what you've been doing in your class and and having the students get a greater sense of understanding about how corona spreads and how these predictions are made, do you find that that's helpful in reducing their anxiety around what's happening? I, I think it does uh, reduce the anxiety. And I think there is that, that misinformation out there. And going over simple things that, well, simple to biologists, like gloving up. But just that simple fact, I went over how to wear a mask. And, you know, one of the big things of, of why the CDC earlier on said don't wear a mask if you're not sick is because masks are uncomfortable. You want to touch your face. So by going over these basic principles, students felt more at ease. And then when they saw the models and what the models meant and taking, taking precautions themselves and why it's important to wash your hands for, for at least 20 seconds uh, with soap and water. Um, why it's important that after every time you touch a surface to uh, when you're outside of your house to um, sanitize your hands and try to avoid touching your face. I think that really helped them. And, and seeing we went over the risk factors uh, tremendously. And, and I said, by and large, the college age group is, is in a much better position to survive than those uh, that are elderly or those that have pre-existing conditions. And that, that also helps being reassured that, no, it's not all doom and gloom, but you still have to take those precautions. And, of course, I always I, I use it as a great time to say, look at the data. Uh, if you are a smoker, now is a great time to stop smoking. If you are a vapor, now is a great time to stop vaping. And here's the data on that. 
on just last week, another article came out suggesting that those uh, who are young and experiencing severe issues with coronavirus have had a history of either smoking or vaping or uh, marijuana use. And, and that, that's a tough thing to say at this, this time, but I think the students felt reassured that there were some things that are in their control, that it's not just all doom and gloom and if you step outside. Because that was the other thing, too, that I think a lot of people were getting from this is don't leave your four walls. As you go through this incredibly uh, drastically changed landscape of teaching, is there a teacher from your past that you've been thinking about as an inspiration or a North Star for you? My PhD advisor, Dr. Daniels, always kind of said, expect the unexpected in, in all things science. Just when you think, and he always, he always used it with, with um, the black-legged tick, also known as the deer tick, the one that primarily drives Lyme disease in this area. Um, he always said that just when you think you figured out something about this tick, it does something completely different. And that's, that's largely a metaphor for science in general as well, right? Once we think we understand something, something else gets thrown in, in there. So expect the unexpected um, uh, from, from Dr. Daniels of the Calder Center. Uh, and then uh, from my undergrad years, um, Dr. Craig Schneider at Trinity College really drove home how important it is to connect with with students like he connected with me and really helped shape not only who I've become today uh, but also my academic track like he helped encourage me because back then I was a pre-med student uh, but I I really loved the research side of things so he kind of steered me uh, in that direction um, and I thank him for that and it was that personal connection he took that time out of his life to, to try to make my career a little bit better and, and a little bit more focused. Uh, and I think that's what we have to take out of all of this. And, and I, I tell everybody, we're in the business educating students and trying to help guide them during this very important time of their life to understand what they really want to do. And education is great. And I often get with my biology students, oh, well, if I don't do medicine, what can I do with a biology degree? And I say, you can do so much. You can go into regulation and, and looking at, at how do you monitor water quality or air quality. You can go into research and, and try to figure out a rapid antibody test. And that is one positive thing I hope comes out of this coronavirus pandemic, that science needs people, right? And we don't need we don't need just researchers. We don't need just health practitioners. Uh, science is always has a hard time communicating with the general population. And I, I said this to one of my um, undergrad or freshman advisees uh, who came in pre-med but really fell in love with, with English and, and wants to still maintain a foot in, in English and in medicine. And I said, we need people like you in, in science. What's going on at the Calder Center right now? And tell people what the Calder Center is and how the Calder Center has been affected by this pandemic. So the Calder Center is Fordham University's biological field station. If you are a member of the Fordham community and you've never been up there, you definitely need to, to just get up there to see what it's all about. But we have multiple labs up there from urban ecology uh, to vector ecology to the greenhouse studies to algae and, and freshwater sciences. 
we, we do a lot of, of academic research up there. Give you a little bit of perspective where we would be. We were centers of excellence for vector-borne disease research. We would be gearing up for our boot camp at this point. It would be starting literally in one month, uh, where researchers from around the country come in uh, for an intensive three-day class on vector diseases from ticks and uh, mosquitoes and learn all about control, prevention, and active research. That's not happening. It's all going to be delivered online uh, this year, and that's also with partnerships with uh, Cornell University, Fordham, Connecticut, uh, Department of Agriculture. A whole bunch of, of collaborators come together to host this each year. Uh, so that's what our lab would have been doing right now. We're focusing mainly on analyzing research right now and getting out academic papers. So I'm wondering if there's anything we haven't had a chance to talk about that you want to make sure that we got to. Even though your instructors and, and professors and administrators might seem calm, cool, and collected if they're doing live classes or recording classes, behind the scenes they might be dealing with with a child that's escaped a crib and no longer wants to nap. Or they might be having, you know, to balance careers out right now. Like having two people working from home with a 19-month-old is very complex. And, you know, my wife being a data analyst for a hospital, I, I do, you know, have to prioritize her conference calls uh, when, they, when they come in. And we're all making sacrifices and none of this is normal. And that is 100% okay. And I want our students to know that, that we still care for them, right? We're still there for them. But I, I'm, I'm proud of, of what we've accomplished as a university. I really and truly am. And, and hopefully we, we are able to all come together at some point and, and you know, see them <laughs> one last time for, for a commencement or something. Thanks so much for teaching us about the science behind it and how to teach the science behind it. It's really, really fascinating. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, TwiceOverPodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at TwiceOver1 or email us at TwiceOverPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.